you've got a Bible, um, let me invite you to turn to Galatians chapter 5, and I'm going to read from verse, uh, verse 16. This particular section of scripture I failed to put on the PowerPoint, so you'll have to use your Bible or the person's next to you. <laughs> Good reason to bring your Bible to church, eh? What if, what if you're worshipping and God drops a scripture into your heart and you think, oh, like a reference, you think, oh great, thank you God, but oh no, I've left my Bible at home. What, what am I going to do? Bring your Bible to church, you never know. So Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. <coughs> it's, it's been a while since I've preached on the fruit of the Spirit, so I want to remind you of a few important truths about the fruit of the Spirit. Firstly, there is only one fruit of the Spirit. It's wrong to say fruits of the Spirit, as if there's lots of fruits. There's not, there's one. There's one fruit of the Spirit. It says in verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is. So there's one fruit. And there's only one fruit because the fruit of the Spirit is the character of Christ. And Christ only has one character, but he has different aspects of that character. And so the character of Christ is perfect love, perfect joy, perfect peace, perfect patience, perfect kindness, perfect goodness, perfect faithfulness, perfect gentleness, and perfect self-control. That is the character of Christ. And Paul refers to the character of Christ as the fruit of the Spirit, because fruit is something that is produced. And so this fruit the character of Christ should be produced not in a, a plant or, or an apple tree, but it, it should be produced in, in us, in the disciples of Christ. We are God of purpose that, that the fruit of the Spirit, the character of Christ, would be produced in his followers and his children. And how does this happen? Well, it's called the fruit of the Spirit, so it happens through the Holy Spirit. As I said, Christ only has one character, and, and it's perfect, and there are no flaws in his character whatsoever. He's, he's perfect, and, and it's his same perfect character that God desires to be produced in us. And so we can't ignore the fruit of the Spirit, because the fruit of the Spirit is in fact evidence that, that we are Christians. It's evidence. 
If you've supposedly been a Christian for years, but there's no evidence of, evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in your life, then something's not right. Paul writes to the Corinthians in, in <coughs> chapter 517 of his second letter, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so as Christians, you're in Christ, as we heard this morning, and, and you're a new creation in Christ. And, and it's now more natural for you to display the fruit of the Spirit than it is for you to dis display the works of the flesh because you're a new creation. And you know it. If you're saved, you know how wrong and how sinful and shameful the works of the flesh are. You know that. You know what it is to sin and how that makes you feel inside because you're a new creation. It jars. It doesn't sit right with you because you're a new creation. But unbelievers don't recognise the works of the flesh as being wrong and sinful and shameful because they're not in Christ. They're outside of Christ. They're not new creations. There's no reason and actually no way that the fruit of the Spirit should be displayed in them. And it's an impossibility because they're not in Christ. The Spirit doesn't dwell in them and so nothing of the character of Jesus will be produced in them. But in disciples of Jesus who carry the Holy Spirit... The character of Jesus should be shining through. And, and you can't pick and choose. Not, not just one or two aspects of his character, but all of them. His whole character. You can't justify your impatience as a Christian and put it down to a character flaw. You can't do that because the old has passed away and the new has come. You're a new creation. You can't justify your lack of self-control or your lack of kindness or your lack of unconditional love for all as a Christian because the old has passed away and the new has come. And if you're a Christian, it is a given that transformation has to be happening in you. Again, Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said in chapter 3, We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. We all, not just, not just the good Christians, not just the pastors, not just... We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So being forgiven is just the start of what it is to be a Christian. It's step one. Your forgiveness of your sin is step one. And, and it's the doorway of transformation, doorway to a life of transformation in, in Christ, to, to be like Jesus. And this transformation isn't optional. This is the way that God purposed it. This is Christianity, transformation. This is what Christianity is about, becoming more like Jesus. And, and if there's no desire in you and no willingness to be transformed, then either you need to be educated, count this as your education, or you need to think seriously about whether you're truly saved or not. Because Christianity is not coming to church. Christianity is not coming to church, it's not singing songs, it's not saying the right things. Christianity is instead by nature a life of transformation. It's a life of knowing Jesus and being changed into his likeness by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what Christianity is. I love the message paraphrase of Ephesians 4. I read this a few months ago now, but I'll read it again. Take on an entirely new way of life, 
a God-fashioned life, a life renewed from the inside and working itself into your conduct as God accurately reproduces his character in you. That is what Christianity is. God reproducing the character of Christ in you to transform you. And I'm going to read a quote from uh, a theologian called Dallas Willard. Again, I've read it before, but I'll read it again. He, he writes, The fruit of the Spirit gives a sure sign of transformed character. When our deepest attitudes and dispositions are those of Jesus, it is because we have learned to let the Spirit foster his life in us. Paul confessed, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The outcome of Christ living within us through the Spirit is fruit. And he, and he lists the fruit of the Spirit. When our deepest attitudes and dispositions are those of Jesus, it is because we have learned to let the Spirit foster his life in us. I'll be honest, I need to let the Spirit do that more in me. I need to let the Spirit foster his life in me daily. And I have to be intentional about that. It's not going to happen by accident. I've got to come before God daily and, and allow him to work in me that I would become more like Jesus. And so, so far in our series on the fruit of the Spirit, we've looked at love, we've looked at joy. And if you want to hear those messages, they're on our website or you can... Uh, request them on a CD by filling in one of these forms down here. But tonight I want to spend some time looking at peace. There's a poet called Baird. What's his first name? Thomas Baird? I don't even know. And he wrote this, po this poem called um, about peace, high peace and the highest peace. Some of you might know it. It goes like this. Three Christian brothers met one day to speak of things divine. They had so much of Christ to say, with joy their faces shine. The first one said, my brothers dear, by virtue of Christ's blood, my heart retains no guilty fear, I now have peace with God. The second brother answered bold, you lag on heaven's road, I grasp the truth with higher hold, I have the peace of God. The third dear brother drew up tall, he laughed and scarce could cease, my brothers dear, I beat you all. I have the God of peace. They all had peace. They all were right. But peace in diverse measure. The third had scaled the highest height of heaven's exalted pleasure. You can't have the peace of God if you don't have peace with God. And when you have peace with God, then you can have the God of peace himself. It's true, isn't it, that most people in the world want peace. John Lennon sang, give peace a chance. There he is. And that kind of peace is it's an absence of war, it's an absence of fighting. And peace with God means that God has nothing against us. Paul wrote in, he wrote to the Romans in chapter 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When God forgives you, when God justifies you, when God wipes out your sin and gives you new life, you have peace with him. He holds nothing against you because Jesus took on your sin. There's a big word for that propitiation where the wrath of God, which we deserved, 
was poured onto Jesus instead of us, and therefore we are justified in the sight of God, and we have peace with God. He holds nothing against us any longer. And this morning I talked about the fact that in Christ we have been made accepted by the Father. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross, God has made us accepted. We have received his righteousness. He received our sin. And therefore, because we are the righteousness of Christ, we are made accepted by the Father. And so you are in Christ. And because God accepts Christ, he therefore accepts you. And on the cross, this all happened. And so when we became Christians, we trust in the, in the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. We thank Jesus for taking our sin on himself. He's removed our sin. God accepts us. And now because of the acceptance of God, because of the fact that he's forgiven us of our sin, he's removed our sin, we're at peace with him. We're made righteous in him. And because we are at peace with God, it is completely possible for us to know the peace of God. In fact, it's more than possible. It's expected. It's our right as Christians, as those who have peace with God. It is our right, it is our inheritance as children of God to know, to experience the peace of God. God is the source of peace and tonight I want you to know the peace of God <coughs> and the God of peace. Jesus said, in John 14, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Who needs peace tonight? The rest of you are lying. <laughs> Jesus wants to give you peace. He wants to. That's his desire. And this peace results in your hearts being untroubled. And this peace results in your hearts being unafraid. And the peace that Jesus wants to give you in a, is in a way a sense that, that all is well. We could have sung when peace like a river attendeth my way. We could have sung that easily tonight and it would have fitted well. We could, we could sing it later on, Steve. There's a song for you. All is well, despite what your circumstances might say. If you have the peace of God, then there is a way, a sense that all is well. Because God, the peace of God is reigning in your house. So how, how can we know this peace of God? How is it possible? First of all, know that God himself always has peace. He always has peace. He, God always has the peace of God. That makes sense, doesn't it? His nature is peace. He is never fractious. God is never on edge. He is never stressed out. He is never anxious. He's always totally at peace. That's God. And remember that the fruit of the Spirit is, is one. It's the character of Christ. And one aspect of the character of Christ is that of peace. God's not in denial, though. He, he knows what's going on. But nothing that ever happens causes him to lose peace. He's always at peace. And so because peace is an aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, we can ask the Holy Spirit to give us that same peace that God has. 
because it's his character. And the fruit of the Spirit can produce that aspect of the character of God in us that, that he never gets stressed out or anxious or, or, or fractious or wh- whatever is going on. We can have that same peace. It's possible. And, and we can ask the Holy Spirit to give us peace. And, and, and we will do that later on this evening. But first I want to emphasise that because peace is part of the character of Christ... It's part of the fruit that the Holy Spirit desires to produce in every Christian all of the time. Along with love, joy, kindness, goodness and all the other aspects, the Holy Spirit desires that we be people of peace. Knowing the peace of God that having peace with God brings. But even more than knowing and experiencing the peace of God, but being so transformed by it. that we have peace all the time. (coughs) If you read Colossians 3, which is, this is your homework, go away and read Colossians 3, you'll find out that it's very much linked to Galatians 5. It talks about putting to death the things of the old man, putting on characteristics of Christ, and it says in verse 14, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And, And it makes sense to put on love above all else because Paul lists love as the first and most important aspect of the character of Christ. He is love before he is anything else, and out of everything that he does comes from his love. But then in in verse 15 of Colossians 3, Paul writes, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. (coughs) I want to spend a few moments... Before we invite the Holy Spirit to come and give us his peace, I want to spend a few moments looking at what this means. What does it mean to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts? As I said before, God wants us to know his peace. That's why it says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. He wants it to happen. We've just got to let let it happen. Isaiah 9, verse 6, another Christmas verse. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He rules his kingdom with peace. Are you part of his kingdom? If you're part of his kingdom, then anything in you that isn't peaceful, anything in you at all that isn't peaceful is alien to you. And whatever it is that is preventing you from knowing the peace of God needs to be exposed and dealt with. You know what it's like to know agitation and distress, yeah? And and often you know what's caused it. But Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts the word rule here is is from the Greek brabuo just in case you wanted to write that down which means to let umpire think of an umpire at a tennis match and the the mouthfuls of abuse that they sometimes receive from players who think that that their ball is in but it's been overruled and it's out and they've got no more calls left on Hawkeye and so they're shouting at the the umpire 
It was in. You cannot be serious. <laughs> but it's the umpire's job to stay calm. The, to umpire the match. To make the right decisions. That is the umpire's responsibility. Or think of a football referee. <coughs> Here's one. That's Roy Keane having a go. It seems every time they make a decision against one player, that player's teammates come rushing up to the referee, yelling at him as if the referee is going to go back on his decision. He never does. It's the referee's job to stay calm, no matter who is yelling in his face, to stay calm and to referee the match, making the right decisions, to rule the game. And sometimes our minds are just like that picture there. And we've got loads of things coming at us, almost yelling at us, pressurising us. Just like Galatians 5, 19 to 21. All these things coming at us. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarrelling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, other sins like these. And, and all of these things that Paul lists, and, and more, there's loads more as well that he doesn't list, all these things are like argumentative tennis players or footballers rushing up to us, wanting to have their way with us, wanting to change our decisions, wanting us to make the wrong decision, and threatening to take away our peace. Does anyone relate to that? <laughs> Do you ever find things building up in your mind so much that it results in an outburst of anger? Or do you let lust build up in you so much that you let it take over and you make the wrong decision doing something you regret? You could give real life examples of any one of these works of the flesh. But the key is to always 